Thank you so much, Chris. And thank you so much, Ralph. You guys, all the work that you put into this is coming through the screen. It's absolutely amazing. I'm just honored and excited to be here. Hi, everybody. I'm Holly. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, sobriety date, September 28, 1996. Um, I do have a home group. I also have three hounds in the room with me. So if you hear weird noises, barking, scratching, or anything like that, hey, lay down. Mommy's talking. <laughs> Please forgive. So my home group, Westconnect, Monday night, 7 p.m. That's Eastern time. And we are hybrid. So if you'd ever like to come from the comfort of your living room, hit me up. I'd be happy to give you those codes. We'd love to have you. Um, I, too, have a sponsor, the amazing Miss Polly P., of course, she has a sponsor and she has a sponsor and I sponsor women and they sponsor women. So securely in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is exactly where I need to be. Um, wow, is all I can say after listening to Amy and Jimmy. Absolutely. Wow. And what an absolutely beautiful layout of steps one, two and three. Um, I'm a little intimidated because Jimmy referred several times throughout his talk to the things that I was going to be telling you in four and five, I thought, oh my God, am I gonna say that? A little bit nervous. So I just wanna apologize in advance, especially to Jimmy, because I'm sure I'm going to disappoint and forget to say anything that you said I was gonna say. So I just want that disclaimer before I get started. Um, you know, I was thinking about, um, especially when uh, Amy was setting up so beautifully the powerlessness and the unmanageability and that mindset that we have when we come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I so related to her and her story. And, you know, I want to just kind of lay out a little bit of a picture of, of me and where I come from and how impactful steps four and five have been in my life. Um, the, they're transforming, but, but I have just, you know, a little bit of a different take on, on the importance of four and five in my life and, and how I didn't, I didn't seek to have a spiritual awakening. Ew, no. So I just want to talk a little bit about that. You know, I, I am too a Chuck C fan, which Jimmy talked about a lot. So we had my undivided attention because, you know, he's, you know, I'm not worthy. He's my hero. Chuck C's new pair of glasses sits on my nightstand with a highlighter. So, you know, speaking a vocabulary that, that made sense to me is what Chuck did. And um, he said that there, that he had one problem, one, one problem. And it encompassed all his other problems. And that's that conscious separation from God and mankind. 12 and 12 says most alcoholics without exception are tortured by loneliness. I get that, that separation. I get that. Now I am a girl that has a memory back to six months old. I remember very, very clearly my entire life, which is a pro or a con, especially when talking about an inventory, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, so I have a clear recollection of how I felt as a small, small, small child and conscious separation from God and mankind that's how I felt. I believe that's the line in the sand that we crossed to become alcoholic. And for me, I became consciously aware of my separation when I stepped into a kindergarten room at four years old. Prior to that, my life was amazing. I had a, a, a daddy that was a prominent surgeon in the small town community we lived in. My mother was a typical alcoholic housewife who drank martinis, cried and slept, was not available in my life. Um, my daddy was large and in charge, very, very exciting, prominent surgeon and mainline amphetamine user, which of course means he got the really good stuff that wakes you up, shot himself up with it. And things were very exciting in my household. And my job was to take care of daddy, you know, help protect him from the G-men that he believed were watching him and were going to come and take him away at any given moment. So he taught me how to drive our convertible Corvette at the age of three. He taught me how to shoot guns at the age of four. I needed to be properly trained to protect him from said G-men. And I had a blast, quite frankly, running around with him and all that excitement and a lot of gun shooting and a lot of insanity in my household. And then I walked into a kindergarten room. Amazing little kid heaven, beautiful, colorful, exciting, filled with a problem. Other children little four and five-year-olds running around playing and having a good time and laughing and 
I stood in the doorway and I watched those children play and I wanted to play too. And I didn't know how. I had no idea what to do. And it was in that moment, I knew something was really wrong with Holly. I needed a drink that day badly, but I had to wait a few months. When I was five, my parents entertained frequently, a lot of cocktail parties. I hated their cocktail parties. They treated me differently when other adults were around. This particular party, I remember it clearly. I know what little dress I was wearing. It was my favorite little brown dress. I was looking at all these people. No one was paying attention to me. It was very uncomfortable. Kindergarten was very stressful. I was having a bad day. And my daddy said, you're five now. You can serve drinks to our guests. So I marched over to the bar. I grabbed a highball glass. I filled it with vodka and a little lemon. We'll call that a martini. My mother did. And I grabbed that glass of vodka and I walked across the room. And as I did that, I drank it. And by the time I crossed the room, I drank that entire glass of vodka. And I am here to tell you that the magic happened for me immediately. It was my first spiritual experience. And it was amazing. I walked across the room and I turned around and I looked at the room and the most inviting, the most, the elusive rabbit that I chased the rest of my active alcoholism happened in an instant. I fell in love with everyone in the room and they all fell in love with me. I became articulate. I had fabulous conversations. I was the life of the party. And at the end of that night, I said, whatever that is, I'm going to drink it as much and as often as I can. And I did. I was an adult in that household. So I became a weekly drinker at the age of five. By 11 or 12, I was pretty much a daily drinker. And at 13, I started hitchhiking around the United States. My mother just went from husband to husband. And at 14, after getting brought home from the police one more time, because I would wake up in Galveston or LA or God only knows where I had I-10, they decided to take me to a psychiatrist who decided I needed a three-day evaluation in the mental institution for which he was the director. And so they dropped me off at DePaul's mental institution for a three-day evaluation. And they promptly picked me up a year and a day later. And the only reason they picked me up is because the insurance ran out. So at 15 years old, I sat on a couch while the psychiatrist said this to my parents in front of me. Mr. and Mrs. Brandell, it's unfortunate that we have to let Holly go home today. In preparation for her homecoming, you need to make funeral arrangements because she is not going to survive. You see, Holly is a sociopath. She's either going to place herself in a position where she's killed or she's going to self-implode with her lifestyle. My mom cried. My dad assured her that he already knew. And I sat on the couch with an answer to the question I'd had since I was four. What is wrong with me? This man has degrees all over the wall. And now I know I'm terminally insane. I'm a sociopath and I'm going to die. And then they let me out. <laughs> well, I'm a little bit of an optimist, which you might know if you know me. Even then, a little bit of an optimist. I thought, well, let's make the best of it. So I made Steppenwolf's Born to be Well my theme song. And off I went. In the next eight years, I hitchhiked around the United States. I ran with very dangerous people doing very dangerous things. And it was, in fact, incomprehensible demoralization. Eloquent term for hell, I think. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> February 2nd, 1981. I'm drinking in a bar in New Orleans. Hello. It was New Orleans. Guy asked me if I wanted to leave the bar to get a condiment. I don't know about you guys, but as defined by Amy so well this morning, I am a real alcoholic. I obsess over alcohol until it's in my possession. And once it's in my body, the phenomenon of craving is instant and all I know is more. And if I try to stop, if I can stop, I can't stay stopped. I qualify as a real alcoholic, but they had a lot of condiments to go along with our alcohol in the 70s. They had 714 stamped on them or they came in white powder form and condiments were lovely. They helped me drink more and travel further. So this particular evening, I left said bar with said gentleman to get some condiment of some sort. And I ended up on what I call another bad date. 
Now, this one was a little more brutal than most of my bad dates. I hadn't got on a jock and he was beating me and various other things. And, and at some point I made eye contact with this guy and I just said, please kill me. Because I'm done. I just can't do this anymore. Well, it freaked him out. He ran off and he left me. So I passed out for a while. I came to a few hours later, found my clothes, put myself together, hitchhiked home, God knows, and called mama at 5 a.m. I told her I'd been mugged the night before because, you know, what are you going to say, right? And then I said, but I'd really like to spend some quality time with you. She's on husband number four. He's an architect, really nice house with a pool in Houston, Texas, and I'm all beat up. So I know I need some downtime. And she says, get to the airport. There'll be a ticket. A couple hours later, I jumped on a plane. I flew from New Orleans to Houston, Texas. And when I got in the car, my mother announced to me that she was three days sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then she said the words that saved my life. She said it would mean so much to me if you would come to a meeting with me tonight to support me. <laughs> she meant it. It was all about her. Thank God. So on February 3rd, 1981, I walked into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, listening, because it wasn't my gig. It was mom's gig, right? So I walk in paying attention. About halfway through the meeting, a little lady says this. She says, you know, she thought she was terminally insane. She says she put alcohol in her body and a crazy woman takes over and takes her places. She doesn't want to go doing things she doesn't want to do definitely with people she doesn't want to do it with. And that she thought she was going to die that way or worse, live. And that got my attention. And then she said she found out she was not terminally insane. What? She said she found out she had a disease. And that disease is alcoholism. And if you have that disease, there's a reprieve. And then she pointed to the wall where those steps were. And she said, all you got to do is work those steps. You never got to feel that way again. And at the end of the night, she, they held up this silver doubloon. They called it a desire chip. And they said, if you have a desire to give up your way of life and try ours, come and get one. And I did. And on February 3rd, 1981, I walked into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, a terminally insane sociopath. And I walked out of that meeting, an alcoholic. Yes. Best news I ever had in my life. Yes. And I dove into Alcoholics Anonymous, fellowship, 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 meetings, meetings, meetings. I lived at the AA clubs. They were, I didn't literally, but figuratively, they were open 24 hours a day back then. You could play cards half the night, smoke cigarettes, talk trash. It was amazing. And at one year sober, I found myself in the little village of Kailua Kona on the big island of Hawaii. Yeah, I followed some guy over there and that didn't work out. I'm walking down the street along the ocean. It's beautiful. It's paradise. I have a really nice tan. I'm a year sober and a bus comes by and I want to jump out in front of it. I can't figure out what I'm doing wrong. I'm going to meetings. I'm drinking coffee half the night. I'm doing all this fellowship stuff. But what I didn't know is that fellowship, 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 meetings, 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 one third of a triangle necessary for sobriety. It is a fabulous tool in Alcoholics Anonymous. It is the substitute for alcohol, but it's not the solution for alcoholism. What? So I went to one more meeting, one more time, and oh my gosh, asked a woman to be my sponsor. Go figure. She said, I'll sponsor you, but you're going to work some steps. Now I opened this up with Alcoholics being tortured by loneliness. And I will never forget when Cherie said that to me. You're going to work some steps. Well, I'm not stupid. They're on the wall. I've read them. There's a couple I might be willing to do, but the rest, no way, not happening. I was raised in church. My mama drugged me to a high church, Episcopal, Anglican Catholicism, all my childhood. They have rules. They call them the Ten Commandments. They're on the wall like every other room in there. You can't get away from them. I started my life coloring little pictures of a man with a beard carrying little sheep around, some guy getting swallowed by a whale, 
you know, all those little stories and they start explaining all that stuff to you. Well, now what I know about me is those 10 rules on the wall. I have broken them all. Absolutely every single one. Now you're going to try to walk me through some steps that I'm going to run into this thing called God. Hello. You know, they dress it up as, as you understand them or a higher power, but I'm not stupid. Didn't I say that earlier? I can see the God thing up there and I know I'm doomed. I'm in big trouble. There's no God going to work for me because I have broken all those rules. And then they give you the whole forgiveness talk. I love the Baptist church because they just always, their veins come out of their neck talking about forgiveness. You're going to be forgiven. You're going to be forgiven. Okay. I might buy that for a minute, that whole forgiveness thing. But the problem that I have with the forgiveness thing is at two o'clock in the morning, what I know is those 10, you know, those 10 rules that God has. Yes, I brought them. Yes, I'm sorry. But quite frankly, there's a few that I may plan on breaking again. You know, I need a couple. I might borrow your husband or your wallet. Certainly your car. Girls got to have transport. So, you know, there's no way that I can get that good. I can't get good enough for God. It's too much to ask. And what I'll tell you is that I don't want to. That's what I'll tell you, that I don't want to. And a crazy thing happened to me. Just a crazy thing happened to me. I got this sponsor, Sheree, and she was amazing. Her name's Sheree Jay. She lives in Sacramento, California, and she has 58 years sobriety these days because of Zoom. I found her, and we text every day now. Pretty cool. But here's the thing about her. She was amazing. She was a goddess. She was a hippie chick. She had a lot of sobriety back then. And I just thought she walked on water. And I wanted her to like me more than anything in the world. I wanted her to like me. I did not want a spiritual awakening. Have you read step 12? OMG. I'm glad I didn't have to talk about that back then. A spiritual, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, no, ew, yuck. I don't want my virginity back. I do not want to walk around with turtleneck sweaters and skirts down to my ankle carrying a big book, which by the way, is pretty much my look these days. But I don't want that. We tried to carry this message to alcoholics. No, oh, they'd say, oh, you're going to help so many alcoholic women. Really? OMG, oh, sign me up for that. That's what I want to do. Help alcoholic women. No practice these principles in all our affairs well I understood affairs so I thought maybe I'd get that part right but other than that I had no desire for a spiritual awakening at all when I got here so if you are new or nearly new and you are not looking to get your virginity back or be spiritually awakened I am here to tell you that's all right find a sponsor that you want to have her like you because that's what I did and she kept giving me assignments. And I do not lie well sober. I have a lot of facial expression, even with Botox. But back then, really cannot lie sober. So Cherie would give me an assignment. And then she'd ask me if I did it. Well, I had to do it. Because if I didn't do it, she would know. And then she wouldn't like me. So I sit down and I do everything that she tells me to do. And then she tells me I got to do this come to believe thing, this step two thing, this... Do you think that, that there's a power greater than you that might think about maybe if, maybe could he restore you to sanity? Doesn't say would, by the way, does it? It says could. Is there a power that could restore you to sanity? Well, I didn't think so. I didn't think that there was a God that would restore me to sanity. And so she told me that I needed to put my God on a shelf, just like what Jimmy talked about put that God on the shelf and start talking to hearts. She told me that I had to introduce myself on my knees in the morning and ask her to God to keep me clean and sober. Then I had to chat him up during the day because I had to be aware of his presence. And then I had to hit my knees at night and thank him for keeping me clean and sober that day. Oh God. And I did it. Understand I hit my knees in the little apartment I lived in and looked around. I lived alone. Good morning, Cherise God. This is Holly. Please help keep me clean and sober today. Just like that sarcastic, defiant, thought it was ridiculous, but I had to do it because she told me to. And then chat him up during the day, like, well, here comes Jim. 
I could you're, you sure use a smoke. Do you think maybe you could have some cigarettes on him? Maybe he'd give me a cigarette because I smoked back then. Just sarcastic and belligerent all day and then thanked him at night. And here's what happened. So this guy, Jim, that I saw walking down the street asked me on a date. He's 10 years sober. I'm one year sober. I won't judge that. Maybe a little. Anyway, he asked me on a date. And I want you to know at 24 years old, I did not know. I really honestly mean this. I did not know that if you went out to dinner with somebody that you didn't have to sleep with them. I thought you did. I thought if you went on a date with a man and he paid, you had to sleep with him. That was part of the date. It was like the tip or something. Like it was just expected. You had to do that. Now, if you went to McDonald's, you might be able to take care of things in the front seat of the car. But if he took you out for a nice dinner, you might be spending the night, you know, kind of like that. So Jim asked me if I want to go out to dinner and I'm super impressed because he's 10 years sober. He has a job and owns a house. What? That's like the jackpot. So we go out to dinner and we go to a nice restaurant. So at the end of dinner, he says, would you like to go back to my place? And I said, absolutely. Not because I wanted to, but because that's what you do. So we go back to his house and we're sitting on the couch in his living room, making out, right? And he says, would you like to go back to the bedroom? And I said, absolutely. Not because I wanted to, but because that's what you do. And then I said, but I need to freshen up in the ladies room first because that's what we do. So then I go into the ladies room. I close the door and I start bawling. I'm just start crying my eyes out because I have a problem. I've got Cherie's God with me and I don't know what to do with him. I can't say, wait here, I'll be right back. You know, I don't know what to do. And it's awful because I'm, I have to sleep with this guy. I mean, it's expected. I have to do that. He's going to hate me. It's so embarrassing. Oh my God, what am I going to do? And I'm bawling my eyes out and I come out of the bathroom and I snot flying and I look at Jim and I go, you have to take me home. And he's like, why? And he wasn't happy about it. You know, men kind of get in the mood and they get a little fussy. And he goes, why? And I said, I have Cherie's God with me. And I'm sure he rolled his eyes. I could probably hear it from now. And he said, all right, fine. And he drove me home and he dropped me at my little apartment and he left and I cried all night. I was humiliated. And the next morning my phone rang and it was Jim. And he said, good morning. I just wanted to tell you that I had a lovely evening last night. And I was wondering if maybe you would like to go to dinner again next weekend. And I said, oh, that would be wonderful. And we made the arrangements and I hung up the phone and I started to cry. And I realized for the first time in my life, I felt like a lady had dignity. It was beautiful. And I, I didn't do it on purpose. Ask for it. God poached me. I can't believe. I can't believe that a change, a transformation could happen outside of me, that I didn't have to create it. I didn't have to manage it. I didn't even have to want it. And it was amazing. And it was in that moment I knew, I knew maybe, maybe, maybe there was a power greater than myself that could do something with me. And what happened in that moment is I realized that I was no longer tortured by loneliness, that I had the first baby step towards a conscious connection. I had an invisible friend called Cherise God. Yes, I had to start with an invisible friend, but we have to start somewhere. And I told Cherie the next day what happened. And she said, oh, good, then you're ready for step three. Oh, great. And we read through the book and she talked about my selfishness and she invited me up to her house and we went into her living room and we she said, we're going to hit our knees and we're going to say the third step prayer in the living room and we're going to open the big book to page 63 and we laid it on our ottoman, ottomans. Do you remember ottomans? Anyway, laid the book open on our ottoman. We knelt down and I said the third step prayer with her and I stood up 
And she gives me this big hug and she's all excited. And I felt nothing. Absolutely nothing. I read a paragraph on page 63. My sponsor's elated. She's jumping up and down. She thinks something amazing has happened and I feel nothing. And then she said to me this, next we launch on a course of vigorous action. That a decision means nothing without action to immediately follow it. It is in fact the action that reinforces the decision. And then you don't have to know anything right now, absolutely nothing. And I started on my fourth step. Now I am not going to even begin to discuss the semantics of a fourth step with you today. You have sponsors for that. And however the sponsor says to do it, that's the way you do it. And hopefully it'll be out of the big book, fingers crossed. But listen to your sponsor as far as the technique and the laying out of your paper and blah, 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 blah. I wanna tell you about mine. I wanna tell you about my first experience and what I think that this little adventure is all about. And I wanna keep in mind for me and what I understand because of Chuck, the language of the solution, the language of the spiritual awakening is a conscious connection to God and mankind. That's it. A conscious connection. I am tortured by loneliness. I have to connect. I cannot survive as a little human being on this planet if I don't connect. And I have two ways of doing that, a spiritual awakening or vodka. But I will connect one way or other. So it is imperative that this treasure map of steps leads me to a conscious connection to God and mankind. Let's be clear. I cannot sit on a mountain cross-legged and go, um, and be sober. It's a conscious connection to God and mankind. I walk to the mountain, I get refreshed, I go into the valley and I touch my fellow man. That is how my life is laid out. Because I was like, you know, born human. So she tells me how to write out my fourth step and I don't want to. I believe that Alcoholics Anonymous, quite frankly, is very unfair because I find this amazing woman that I love more than anything in the world that I want her to like me and I want her to save a seat for me at meetings. I want her to acknowledge me in passing. And now I have to write down every horrible, disgusting, terrible thing about myself and then tell her, because you know, hello, I can see step five on the board. That's not fair. Do you think that's fair? Welcome home. Welcome to Alphaus Anonymous. We're so glad you're here. Gippy, skippy. We're going to save you a seat. Get y'all comfortable. Get you a sponsor that you're going to feel real special now, like you belong to somebody. And you're going to start listening, following a few little suggestions, start feeling like a few brownie points, gold stars. And then you got to do this. That's how I felt. I didn't think it was funny at all. And it's kind of like you're darned if you do and you're darned if you don't. Like you got to do it. You're stuck. You got to move forward. Vigorous action, right? So I do it. I do. I thought, what have I got to lose? You know, at this point, I got nothing to lose. And I write it all down. I write it all down. Everything she tells me to write down. Holly's perception. Don't you love columns one, two, and three? <laughs> Holly's perception. Understand I spent a year in a mental institution. I know it's their fault. I know it is. Daddy number one, daddy number two, daddy number three, daddy number four, four. Learning to drive at three, shooting guns at four. Using neighborhood animals for target practice. I will tell you that I do not kill animals today. Running the streets, stealing cars, stealing people's lives, being a whirling dervish, existing and surviving on the streets for eight years. And here I sit and I'm writing it down. And then I have to walk up to Cherie's little house and do my fist tip. And I want to tell you what happened that day. You know, the fifth step, I thought the fifth step was analysis, right? I thought I'm going to write all this stuff down and she's going to help me to see, which she did, by the way, 
help me to see that column four because sometimes I, we have an inability to see it. I don't know about you guys, but I do not have, you know, this perfect ability to see step four, to see the defense table, you know, to see my behavior and how it affected others. I had to be kind of walk through a little bit of that in my fifth step. It had been ingrained in me for many, many, many years that it was my childhood and, and the behavior of the various adults in it that created this. So I go up to Cherie's house and I tell it all to her. We go, we go underneath this little deck and she's got three little beanbag chairs set up, one for her, one for me. And I thought, oh my God, she's got a sponsor. Somebody's training to be a sponsor. She says, no, that's God's beanbag chair. And she kind of pushed it down so God could sit with us, which was really freaking me out. And then I just told her everything. And I didn't look at her. I didn't look at her. I looked at the ground and I cried and I blew my nose and I read it all, everything, everything, everything. And when we were, were done, a miracle happened for me. And I want to tell you that I didn't expect it. I wasn't looking for it. And I didn't want it but it was the most amazing thing ever. We walked out from underneath that little deck and Cherie grabbed me. She was kind of a big woman and she gave me a big hug and then she got my shoulders. You know how people do that? They have control of you, right? So she has me by the shoulders and she pushes me back and she looks me in the eye and she says, I love you. And I looked her in the eyes and I knew in that moment, that woman knew everything about me. She knew me she loved me and in that moment i made my very first human friend and i believe that is the miracle of a fist step i believe that conscious connection is the solution and without my invisible friend called Cherise God, and then my very first human friend, my sponsor, I would not have the necessary support to move forward. And it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. I believe that, you know, that the big book talks about that the fellowship will grow up around us, right? And we all think it's because we can run to a thousand meetings a day now in our various little villages and cities that we live in. And we can make lots of friends and, and socialize and go to dinner. But, you know, they didn't have that when that book was written. So what are they really talking about? And I realized that it's not go to 50 million meetings and save seats and sit with your litter mates. When it really hit me about that fellowship growing up around me was the first time I heard of Fifth Step. The first half time I sat across from a woman sharing her fourth step with me. And as she shared her pain and her anguish and her shame and all the stories that I could relate to, and I was able to share back with her at the end of that journey to be able to look at her and know without a shadow of a doubt that I loved her. I love listening to a fist step because I know I'm going to fall in love that day. I mean, really deeply fall in love. And to be able to look at her and say, I love you. And connect. That I believe. It's the fellowship that Bill was talking about. That's just not acquaintances, is it? That's connection from the soul, common peril, common solution, reaching my hand out and saying, me too. It's not just about doing my fist step. It's about hearing them as well. I'm going to tell you about the most difficult inventory that I ever did. I came into the, I did the steps. I went into the rest of the steps with Cherie and she sent me back home, which was Houston, Texas at the time. And I went back home because all my amends were in the, on the continent. They were not on the island. And I did everything that this program told me to do. And I got very, very happy, joyous and free. I got a husband. I got four children. I was managing a company that my degree is in. I was teaching Sunday school. I was a member of the community and I had arrived. 
I had gratitude. I believed that the end game of Alcoholics Anonymous was to get me a life because I never had one. I existed on the streets really from, I started drinking at five. So, and I got exactly that. I'm a good student. I can do what you tell me to do. And I did it. And I got very, very, very busy. I moved to Jacksonville, Florida um, for a wedding, mine, and uh, married a button-up sweater guy, right? Like, really? He wore button-up sweaters. I never dated a man in my life, owned a button-up sweater. Hello, that was not the way I rolled. And, and I married Michael, and, and I came into that marriage with a daughter. He had one, and we had two baby boys together. And, and my life was amazing, and I was extremely grateful, very, very grateful, and very, very busy with the third dimension lie. And what happened for me was very, very, very scary. What happened for me one day on an absolutely fabulous day when I was very, very thirsty, cleaning the house all day. My life was amazing. I reached into a refrigerator and I drank beer. And I didn't even see it as beer. I was simply thirsty. I had no thought of a drink. I didn't want a drink. Never crossed my mind to have a drink. And yet I drank a cup of beer. And it took me six months to even realize that I did it. Absolutely terrifying, absolutely terrifying, cunning, baffling, powerful. And I ran, and I mean literally ran back to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and threw myself on the steps of the church and then back into the steps. And I want to tell you that the most difficult inventory I ever did was after that relapse, September 28, 1996. I jumped right back in. I did steps one, two, and three before the meeting opened that night. I mean, I knew, I knew I was done. I knew I was surrendered. It's just like um, Jimmy talked about. There was that little reservation all along that give God your alcohol problem, turn it all over and then get a life and then manage it well, right? My favorite line in the big book. Is she, I can change the pronoun. Is she not a victim of the delusion that she can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this life if she only manages well? Yes, sober. Yes, sober. That line applies to me. And it was time for that fourth step. And I had to write an inventory of Holly, of Holly, not drank too much tequila and woke up in LA. No, sober behavior who I was and what I had done. How did I get here? No excuses. And it was the most amazing inventory I've ever done. Absolutely the most amazing because there were no excuses. You know, if you steal a car in a blackout, run off with someone's husband, and then you wake up in California with them, you just kind of go, oops, but you figure it was just the tequila, right? But what about if you marry somebody and they have no idea who you are? What about if you marry a button-up sweater fella who knows you got sober and alcoholics anonymous at 23 and that's all he knows about you? He thinks it's very commendable that you stop drinking so young. What if you marry somebody and they have absolutely no clue? And then you wake up one day and say, I need to throw myself back into alcoholics anonymous and they don't understand. They don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. We've been married for eight years. I watched you drink and nothing happened. You don't have a problem with alcohol, you're fine. What do you mean you have to start going to meetings every day? What do you mean you need to start doing all that? I don't understand it, I don't get it. And what if you end up getting divorced? What if you end up that marriage ends when you're six months sober? But what if you know that you've got to separate, that you can't, he has no idea who you are. What if you start taking a look at the fact that you never told him because you didn't ever want to be her again? Do you ever hear people talk from the podium and they say, I am not the woman that walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. That woman is gone. She doesn't exist. I'm a new woman. I've had a spiritual awakening. I am not that person anymore. I am here to tell you, yes, I am. I am her. Yes, I am. Absolutely. And without a spiritual awakening, I can be her tomorrow. And I thought that wasn't true. I thought if I 
packaged it all together, all that guilt and that shame and all that bad behavior, and all the things that I had done in the past, all of that yuck, if I packaged it all up and I just put it away, that it didn't exist anymore. I didn't have to look at that ever again because I'm going to be a good girl now. We're not going to say the F word in my household. I'm going to teach Sunday school. I'm going to be, and which is lovely. <laughs> All wonderful things. Don't get me wrong. I have to embrace all of me, good and bad, right? I'm not going to jump ahead in the steps, but hello, all of me. And I did that inventory and I saw what I'd done. I saw the ego and the pride that Jimmy talked about, that it had run my life that I thought I had to be a certain way to be sobriety. To be a spiritual awakening means I need to be flawless on the outside. I need to not make mistakes. I need to be a good mom, manage everybody, manage the husband, bless his little heart. I live in the South. All of that, and I do an inventory and I take a good solid look at me. And it was terrifying and enlightening and beautiful all at the same time. And I am here to tell you, people are so afraid of an inventory. What if you're wrong? Like, what if everything you think about yourself is wrong? It's the best news I ever had. I thought I had to manage everything. I thought I had to be a good wife and a good mother and a good daughter and a good sister and a good PTA member and a good employee and a good church member. And I had to do it all the time. It's exhausting. And I thought I had to do all of those things to be a good person, to be a human, to be a real girl. You see, because I'd never been a real girl before. Never. And I thought I had to do that to be a real girl. And what I find I found out was that none of that's true at all. As a matter of fact, flaws are pretty amazing. How do I know that? Because perfect people, I distance myself from. I cannot deal with perfect people. They make me very uncomfortable. The more flawed you are, the more I love you. Isn't that awesome? And what that does is it allows me to be flawed. I mean, I have to remind myself sometimes, or you remind me. I did this inventory and I want to tell you something that happened when I did the FISTA. So I wrote out the inventory and I was painstaking in this inventory and I took a look at all of my behaviors. I took a look at things like walk. I went to visit my husband one time. I'll just share this story with you. I'm newly married, honeymoon phase, six months in. And I rode my bicycle to his office. It was about two miles down one road. It was like a four lane highway beach boulevard. Okay. And I ride my little bicycle to his office and I go in Hi, I'm here for lunch. I thought I'd surprise you. And he's like, oh, how wonderful. You know how you are when you're early married. And then he looks up and he goes, wait a minute. How did you get here? Cause my, I think my car must've been in the shop or something. It might be why I've ridden my bicycle. And I said, oh, it's a beautiful day. I rode my bike. Hello, I live in Florida. And he said to me, oh my God, you rode your bicycle on Beach Boulevard? Honey, do you know how dangerous that is? And I want you to know in a tenth of a second, as I looked at him with a stone cold face, my mind said, I hitchhiked around the United States for a decade. Riding a bicycle on Beach Boulevard is not dangerous. But what I said to Michael is this, oh honey, I'm so sorry. I did not mean to worry you. I'll never do it again. And we went to lunch and after lunch, he put my bicycle in the trunk of the car and he drove me home. And when I did my inventory, I realized that day, that day was a moment it was a moment when I could have told him who I was. It was an opportunity. It was a wide open door. But instead, I thought my motive was, I don't want to worry my new fabulous husband, architect, 
fabulous life. No drinking problem, no drug problem. Milk toast kind of guy, right? I don't want to worry him. I don't want to hurt him. I don't want to upset him. I have such loving motives. 1996, when I wrote that inventory, what I saw very clearly is on that day, 1989, on that day, what I did was steal my husband's opportunity to choose. Because really deep down inside what I was, was afraid that he wouldn't like me, that he would reject me, that he would walk away from me if he knew who I was. So I rejected me. So I no longer could share it with him. And in that simple action, I spent the rest of our marriage being three quarters of the piece of pie that I am. Never letting him see that missing quarter of that piece of pie until I picked up a drink and ran to Alcoholics Anonymous and he never understood. He never understood. And I heard him. I heard him badly. We've been divorced 27 years, 26, wait, what am I? I'm 27 years sober, so 26 years we've been divorced. He's never remarried. He has a long-term girlfriend. He lives a mile and a half down the road from me and he's a really good guy, but he's still hurt. He's a good Catholic. The damage that I can do in sobriety, the damage I can do with good intentions, my behavior had nothing to do with Michael, did it? Absolutely nothing. He did absolutely nothing. I make decisions. And then I respond out of fear, character defects that are set up around me to protect me. And what they do, in fact, is separate me from God and mankind and destroy me one breath at a time. The last thing that I want to talk about in that second inventory, my fifth step, are two of my stepdads. The first inventory that I did in 1982 with Cherie, both stepdads were on that inventory resentment list. And the, and the scenario was daddy number one, well, really number two, anyway, semantics, the surgeon, the crazy surgeon. When I was eight years old, he was freaking out like he normally did. And it was always my job to manage him and calm him down. My mom always was crying in the background and, and staying protected. And, and he was freaking out and throwing things and shooting the guns around the house and, you know, doing all that. And uh, he grabbed my baby sister. I have one sibling, four years younger than I, and he grabbed her and held a gun to her head. So I went out the window and I went to the neighbors and I asked if I could use their phone and I used their phone and I called the police. And they came and they took him away, not to jail, but to some prominent hideaway facility where they take surgeons for treatment. And he was gone for about eight or nine months. My mom divorced him finally when all that happened and we're moved to another house in the same little town and eight or nine months have gone by and now he's gonna come and visit my sister and I. And I'm so excited. I have my favorite dress on and I'm sitting in the window and I can't wait for him to get there. And he pulled into the driveway and it's like, daddy, 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 I'm so excited. And he walked into the house. He walked past me. He picked up my baby sister. He walked out of the house. And he didn't say a word to me and he didn't say a word to me for 20 years. Now, two things. Number one, find out not my real daddy. And in, in the 60s in a divorce, you don't get visitation of children that aren't yours. So he had, was under no obligation to take me, only my baby sister who is his. And second, you do not rat out an amphetamine user when it is your job to protect him. Hello, maybe that was reason number one. And he was an amphetamine user till the day he died. And I did the cardinal sin. I'm the one that ratted him out and he knew it. So that was on my inventory, poor little Holly, right? My first sponsor said, you were just a child. And she went to that, he's a sick man line. And I'm here to tell you that I think under some circumstances that line should be removed. But so, you know, he's a sick man. He was, you know, it wasn't your fault. You were just a little child, blah, blah, blah. So here I am in the mountains doing my fist step. In 1996, I tell that same story to the minister I was doing the inventory with. And he says, 
well, wait a minute. What were you thinking when you went out the window to the neighbors? You must have been terrified. And I said, no, not really. And he said, and how did you end up making the call to the police? I said, well, I didn't tell the neighbors what was going on. I just asked if I could use their phone. And he said, why? Remember, I have a memory back to six months old. I know exactly what I was feeling when I went out the window and called the police. Powerful, in charge. Oh my God, I'm the boss of everybody. This is exciting. I wasn't afraid at all. I never for a moment thought he'd pull the trigger. Now understand I was eight. As an adult, he could have very easily shot any of us at any given time. But I did not know that then. The decision I made was coming from being powerful, being selfish, being in charge. I'll show him. And I ratted him out on purpose. And that minister looked at me and said, you love that man in amends. Daddy number three was a Navy guy, officer that liked to beat you up if you didn't answer the questions. He asked, you know, like, where are you going? Which I thought was none of his business. This is the stepdad that with my mom put me in the mental institution. Really mad at him. I tell Cherie all about it. He used to beat me up all the time, blah, blah, blah. I'm hitchhiking around the United States. He was horrible. He put me in a mental institution. You were just a child. He's a sick man. You have to forgive him. The minister says, because funny, he's still on the list. The minister says, okay, wait a minute. So if you were sitting and watching TV, would he come and snatch you out of a chair and beat you up? Well, no. So if you went home and just went in your room, would he just come busting in your room and grab you and beat you up? No. So basically it's only when he asked you a question, you refused to answer and you get in his face and he hit you and you'd fall down and you'd get back up and yell some more and he'd hit you and you'd fall back down and get back up. Yes. Why did you get back up? I said, because I wasn't done yet. And he says, well, how did you treat him? He was a naval officer and his job was he was in charge of the officers club. And I had the American flag sewn on the rear end of my jeans. It was during the Vietnam War and I was protesting. And I would march through that officers club with the American flag sewn on the rear end of my jeans, pull up to a bar stool and sit down. Now, what I know is that that is extremely disrespectful to the flag. I know that today. I did not know. Oh, I did know that then, but I didn't care. I can't imagine the grief I gave that man. I gave that man so much grief. I stole his car. I stole his sailboat. I had a friend of mine that I complained to once about him hitting me, who then took a group of men in one night when I wasn't home. My mom wasn't home, just my stepdad was. They threw him down on the ground. They put a sawed-off shotgun to the back of his neck. They kicked him in the sides and they told him if he ever messed with me again, he was dead. And then he left my mom right after that and said, I can't do this anymore. Hmm. My behavior. Whoops. My behavior. And I saw it. I saw it. And I'll tell you the freedom of seeing your behavior, the freedom from me of seeing my behavior. Fearful, the adolescent behavior. When I got to take a look at all of that, what I knew is that the world had not separated from me, that I, in fact, had separated from it. And I was able to move forward in the steps. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and a privilege.